the ground was frozen and there was, there was no signs of life in it. And I'm struck by this every year at this time. Uh, the, the, the symbolism there is, the ideology there is, that we can look at uh, any given part of your creation. And we can look at any given part of our lives and say, where there was once just frozenness and darkness and no signs of life, it is the work of God that new life comes uh, just by his hand and by his decree. And so I'm reminded, uh, many of us are reminded this time of year, of the grace and the sovereignty of who you are, just to watch you bring life back out of the earth again. And uh, I hope, God, that for many of us it reflects on the, the, the hope and the encouragement that we can draw in our own lives. Because some of us are in a winter season in our lives. Some of us are in that time and place where we feel like, uh, I don't know what God can make of this. It feels dark, it feels cold, it feels empty. But you show us year after year after year, season after season, time after time, you show us what you're capable of. So thank you for that reminder. I want to thank you as well for uh, the fellowship we get to share when we come together. This is no small thing that we get to spend this time together. We get to be encouraged from one another, spend some time together and enjoy one another's company. And uh, we can do so knowing the confidence that you said where we would gather, your spirit would be present with us. And that's an awesome thing. Uh, some of us are here in the room this morning. We need to be reminded and we need to get ourselves reoriented around the fact that you've never actually abandoned us. Even in the moments when we were literally alone, we were never apart from you. And so uh, we come this morning in part to celebrate you and thank you for that. So for your faithfulness, for the presence of your spirit, and for what you will accomplish as we uh, look into your word. We come into your word not just to uh, pick up words off a page, but we come into your word expecting we get to see something of you. And that we'll leave this place not the same people that we were when we got here. Because any glimpse of God can't leave us the same as who we were. So we ask your blessing on that, Father. As we uh, look into your word, we ask your blessing uh, that you would reveal something to it, uh, of it to us. And uh, we seek this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, welcome here this morning. We had, a, we had a great event yesterday. Ladies, if you, if you missed it, when we get a chance to do it again, you are not going to want us. The next time we do the, a small cast event, it was a really great event. Uh, somebody from the worship team, tell me, do you know where the remote went? We're, we're pointing. Oh, there we go. Excellent. Um, really great event. You had a chance to hear yesterday Priscilla Schreier, uh, sorry, sorry, Priscilla Schreier um, preaching from John 15. And uh, it was a fantastic, fantastic day. So next time you see that coming up, ladies, you don't want to miss that. That was, that was a lot of fun and a really great, really great event. Uh, Ethan and uh, Jesse, could I have you guys come up here just, just for a second? It'll just be real quick. This won't take long at all. I'm guessing they might know what this is about. But uh, I just want to, this is apart from the message, I just want to share a little story uh, with you guys. So, so these two fine, upstanding young men uh, under the guidance, I believe, of our youth pastor. Would that be correct? It's not your idea. It was his idea. You're shifting the blame officially right now. Uh, on on uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day, they, they were here with Daryl. And I happened to be in my office, and uh, these three came sauntering into my office very casually with a glass with some ice in it and a Coke. And... Uh, just so that you know, he looks real innocent. He just he just kind of stood off the side looking at his phone like, I don't have anything to do with this. I think he had something to do with it. He couldn't, like, he looked just like that the whole time. You could just tell something was up. And so Daryl, you know, opens the Coke, and they're, hey, Pastor Steve, how are you doing? And pours the Coke for me and slides it over to me, and I'm like, 
okay, how you doing, guys? And we're chatting away, and a couple minutes later, I took a sip. Diet Dr. Pepper. Diet Dr. Pepper. Um, so when I was about your age, at the church we were at, uh, the, 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 the reverend was Reverend John Barrett. And uh, I, uh, I had reverence for him. I, I was intimidated by him. I didn't want to, you know, risk offending him. And it's an encouragement to me that you seem to share none of that. So, you know, April Fool's, good joke and all. Here's the thing that, after the fact that I'm thinking about it, really bothered me. Um, it's not so much that you played a joke on me. I need to know, maybe I don't, I really need to know, what happened to the original Coke? Because, here's what I'm thinking. It, it was, the, there was, I had a bottle of Coke in the fridge. Now, one of two things had to happen. In order for you to get the Diet Dr. Pepper in the bottle, which is a sin. Let's be clear about this. That is a sin right out of the Bible. You don't, you don't replace Coke with Dr. Pepper. But in order to do that, you had to do one of two things. You had to either drink my Coke, or you had to pour it out. Let's just have a moment of confession here and clear the air. Yeah. I'm clean all the way through. That's all good. Which is something none of you needed to know this morning. I, I just want you to know, guys, that the text, so there's only one thing I brought you up here to say, is that I am not the type of person who, who needs vengeance. I, I don't get revenge. Immediately. <clears throat> Wouldn't it be terrible if these poor young guys had to spend the rest of their lives walking around looking over their shoulder, wondering when the hammer's going to drop? The hammer's going to drop, I'm just telling you. <clears throat> I don't want to live like that. I don't think you want to live like that. But how often have you been part of a conversation... Or how often have you yourself found yourself thinking of God in such a way that you're living your life looking over your shoulder wondering when he's going to drop the hammer on you? All right? This fear that maybe there's a little bit of God. And man, if you, if you read only the Old Testament God, if that's the only picture of God you get, you can form that view pretty quick. He's wiping out nations of people. He's writing out law that says, you know, this, these sins cause death. And not hard. For some people to come with that image of God. And for the last few weeks, with a couple of Sundays, uh, with some other things going on in between, <laughs> we've been talking about what is the gospel? What is the central core message to Scripture? Because let's say amen to this. It's not that, right? The central message to our Bible is not God will get you. Like in the end, you do what you want, but God's going to get you. That's not the central message to all of Scripture. And so we asked a few weeks ago, what is this thing we call the gospel. And we recognize that inasmuch as the gospel is the whole reason the church exists, it's not actually as easy as we thought to just rhyme it off, right? I suggested to you a few weeks ago with our whiteboards up here that the gospel starts here. In the first few words of Scripture, your Bible says, in the beginning, what's the next two words? God created. Elohim bara. Elohim, the plural form of the God of power. So this, this God who has more than one part to him, 
and has all the power available to him, created, barah. He carved out, he made. That's where the word of God starts, and I'm going to say this morning, that's where the gospel starts. The word of God tells us, from the beginning, God created. It's the story of creation, and he has this wonderful creation that has a way of sustaining itself and replenishing itself and healing itself and restoring itself Genesis 1, it tells us all about the way he put it together, and there's this beautiful rhythm to it. There's this beautiful system to it. Um, it. It talks about the Sabbath way of doing life. And in Romans 1, uh, Paul repeats, and he talks about this creation, and he says, you can know something about the Creator by looking at his creation. You can pick up these intrinsic truths about the nature of God just by going for a walk in the woods. And when you see it, and when you understand, and when you recognize how creation works, you can get a sense of who God is. <coughs> so that's the story that we're told in Genesis of this creation, this Elohim and what he does in creation. And then in the story of Exodus, as we move in, we find that what happens is the human being, you and I enter the scene, and God says, in all of my creation, you somehow are the pinnacle of it. Nothing else in all of creation reflects me or, or teaches people about me more so than the human beings themselves. And yet all through the Old Testament, we find these just stories of struggle and angst and death and, and all these kind of things. <coughs> and the book of Exodus is a story where it really comes to a pinnacle. Uh, Moses basically comes and says, God says it's time for his chosen people to be free. And Pharaoh says, well, there's a problem with that because I'm God in this world. So whatever your God says, I get to be God here. And so the story of Exodus is this epic struggle of the greatest known human at the time, no one on the earth was higher in power and authority than Pharaoh, standing against God himself. And we know, of course, how the story ended. Not only was Pharaoh destroyed, the entire nation of Egypt was wiped out as God brought his people out. And so we've seen that played out over and over and over through history. Look at some of God, uh, the state of mankind and man's kingdoms down through history, you think of all the times that a person or a group of people or a nation has tried to present themselves as the ultimate authority on this planet. And look at instead what God says through his scriptures. Um, at the time that Nebuchadnezzar was king, and he says to Daniel, I've had this really weird dream, and I don't know what my, this dream means. And Daniel says, this is what your dream means. God gave you this dream so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And he gives them to anyone he wishes. That phrase is repeated four times through Daniel 4 and 5, over and over and over again. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar envisioned themselves as being no higher authority but me. And God says, Daniel, says, no, no, no. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men. And he can give them to few wishes and he can take them away at any given moment. In fact, when Daniel was declaring the same thing to Belshazzar, he no, he no sooner said it than it happened. That very same night, his kingdom was taken away from him. In Isaiah chapter 40, uh, we heard some of this. Ladies, you heard some of this yesterday as she read this powerful passage. God's speaking to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, and he says this. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing if he so chooses to do. And a couple chapters later, God says through Isaiah, I am the Lord, that's my name. I don't yield my glory to another. I don't, I don't share it with anybody else or praise to idols. So God's pretty clear about who he is and how his kingdom works. And so here's the story that we find in Genesis, that God is his creation, and then in Exodus there's this huge, big 
um, struggle that goes on. And what we found over and over and over again, all the stories of the Old Testament, is that every story of struggle and power and pride always end up in some form of chaos, always end up in some form of captivity. The idea of captivity in the book of Exodus is central to understanding the gospel. The idea of captivity in the book of Exodus is absolutely central to understanding the gospel because the people of God, his promised people, those whom his favor rests on, found themselves in a situation that they could do nothing about. I don't know how many they would have outnumbered the Egyptians by, but it didn't, it, it didn't matter. You were a slave. You were born a slave. You were third, fourth, fifth generation a slave. You were not going to get out of slavery. There was nothing you could do about it. And so it's absolutely critical for us to understand the nature of captivity tells us it is only God that can bring freedom. It is only through the miraculous work of God that freedom came. So Moses comes to Pharaoh when he says, God says it's time for the people to go, and Pharaoh says, I say it's not. And plague after plague after plague that is systematically reducing Egypt down to nothing, wiping out their people, wiping out their crops, wiping out their, their riches. Everything, God's just taking them apart piece at a time. Now, in the Old Testament, they had a word for this freedom. When the people finally gathered up and left the land, there was a word that they assigned to it. When you when this whiteboarding a couple weeks ago, do you remember what the word was? that they would say, here's what happened, here's what God did, and he brought us what? Do you know what the word is? Salvation. That's the word they used. That was the word that was used to describe the miraculous act of God to take people out of captivity, give them an identity, give them a purpose, and give them freedom. That's the first time the word salvation is used in the Bible. What's well, not the way we use the word salvation, right? We see salvation is, if you believe a certain thing and commit to certain things, you can have the hope of heaven someday. That's all true, but you need to know the first time that the word, word, uh, the word of God, the word salvation, it talks about freedom from captivity. Now look at This is where we have to start to understand the gospel. The, the very first base point of the gospel, one infinitely good God. Because if you don't start there, what does, what does the rest of it matter? If we say the gospel, well, if you believe the gospel, you can be redeemed and, and have a relationship with God. Well, what, what God? What if the ancient cultures were right and there's actually multiple gods? Then reconciling with one of them doesn't really do a whole lot for me. What if modern thinking is right and you and I are God? Basically, there's no higher calling, no higher intellect, no higher purpose than mankind. Well, then reconciling to a God is just an ethereal, silly idea. So the gospel has to start with this. There's one God and he's infinitely good. His creation uh, reveals something about himself to us, um, and he's hoping, his, his love is, that we would be reconciled to him. That's where the gospel has to start. It's not all good news from there, though. I mean, the, 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 the start of the gospel is there's one God for all of creation, and he hopes to be redeemed. You can turn your Bibles to Romans. And start, we're going to start in chapter 2. Because the next part, the next step in understanding the gospel is a little more difficult for us. We say the gospel is good news, and ultimately it is. But good news is only good in light of what? Something that's not so good. And you don't need salvation unless you're in a, somehow you're in a bind that you can't do for yourself. If you can get yourself out of a certain situation, you don't need someone else to act on your behalf. You don't need salvation. You just work harder, dig deeper, do whatever you need to do, and get out of it, right? So there's no point to salvation unless you find yourself in a situation which I can't, I can't 
fix this situation, not unlike captivity. Oh, uh, let me remind you, we did this, I think, last year. We walked through the Book of Romans. Let me give you a quick context for the Book of Romans, because this, this is relevant for us in understanding this. Um, ancient Rome, the long-standing, the people with history, the, the, the people who were labeled, who identified themselves as people of God, is what people group? Go ahead, for The Jews. The Jews. Okay? So when you think Old Testament, first century people who say, we are the people of God, we've got history, we've got tradition, that's the Jews. That's them. First century Rome, uh, I apologize, I forget the name of the emperor, but the emperor says, I've had it with the Jews. I'm tired of their traditions, I'm tired of their culture, I'm tired of the way it keeps interfering with the Roman Empire. You're out. And he kicks the Jews out of Rome. So there's, there's essentially no practicing Jews in Rome. There's no active temples going on. And so for those people who've responded to the, the narrative, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and begin to gather together as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, they're not Jewish people. They're Gentile people who have none of the traditions, none of the history, and none of the background. So the early Christian church in Rome has no Jewish traditions. Now imagine for me, it's not it's not really good hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is just the, the, the practice of reading and interpreting Scripture. It's not really good hermeneutics to make a direct line of comparison between Old Testament Jews and modern-day Christians. But we're going to do it anyway, because there's some principles for us to understand. So I need you to imagine this. Imagine that the Canadian government says, enough church. It's just, this whole, the whole faith, the Christian things, they bother me, they're annoying, so no Christian churches, and they wipe us out. There's no active churches going on in Canada. And by the way, there's absolutely zero threat of that. Zero. None. I know sometimes their government does things and we all kind of complain. No threat. But let's say it happened. Tomorrow, church is gone. And, I mean, they come in with bulldozers, knock down the building. You can't even show up here next week. There's nothing here. And a whole bunch of new people start to embrace faith in Jesus Christ. And they know they can't do it like we used to do it because we just got wiped out by the government. And so they start forming faith in Jesus Christ in ways, and they don't, they don't do any things that we do. They don't have worship teams, and they don't do offerings, and they don't do this, and they don't do that, right? And you and I have been tossed. But this new group of people just start to dedicate themselves to the teachings of Jesus Christ. That's really the only thing that matters to them. And they gather under the banner more about Jesus. I want to learn about Jesus. I want to live like Jesus described it. Now, when you and I are allowed to come back in, what are we likely going to do? Right? When we, when we come to their gatherings... What are we going to say to them? We're going to say, that is so cute, the things that you're doing. You're doing church wrong. You're doing church wrong. Come on, we'll show you how to do church, right? Because we've got years and years and years of traditions, and they didn't realize they're supposed to have buildings, and they're supposed to have this, and they're supposed to have that. That's okay, we'll just teach them. We'll just add this stuff back in so that they get to do church right. That's exactly the picture of first century Rome. Because when the Jews came back in, they said, okay, we're not, they're not denying this faith you have in Jesus Christ. You're missing some really important things. So here's the things you have to do. That's the context for the letter. So uh, Paul says, you watch how Paul, in these next few chapters, systematically says to the Jews, none of what you're bringing is relevant to these people. And it doesn't matter to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul starts to systematically deconstruct these arguments that are made of them. So the first couple chapters of, uh, of Romans, he's writing, writing to the Jews and he says, look, you, you observe these people and they're, they're full of wickedness, 
Uh, he's talking about people outside of faith. And look at the things they're doing. They're denying God. They're proving themselves to be foolish. And, and you know, he's getting them all on side. You can you imagine his audience going, yeah, yeah, see? See, Paul, look at them. And look at them. Yeah, you're right. Look at all these horrible, heinous people. And then Paul says something that really, I think, would have shifted the, the whole scripture of it, or the whole, uh, the whole feeling of his letter. He said, by the way, you guys are doing the same thing. You, you established people of faith. You have been around faith long enough. You do the same things that they're doing. Now tell me, if Paul wrote you a letter, if anybody wrote you a letter and said, look at the evil and the wickedness in the world and look how foolish people are, and look at, and you're going, yeah, absolutely. If that letter now said, now, by the way, Ross, I've been watching you. You're just as bad as the rest of them. Are you eager to keep reading? <laughs> well, if it's identifying Ross, yeah, sure, no problem. But if, if that letter said, now look, you're guilty of the same thing. At the very least, you're probably just going to set it down and go, well, I'm not sure I want to read any more of that. But that's exactly what happens in Paul's letter. Chapter 2 of Romans, I'm going to start reading from verse 17. Uh, so you jump back real quick. Verse 1, it says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Right? That's literally his words. Now flip over to 17. Now here's where I'm going to I'm going to do something with this that this isn't this isn't really good hermeneutics, but I want you to stay with me here and practice this. Everywhere this passage says Jew, I'm going to insert the word you. Okay? If you're in the church today and you say, "Well, I like I I was I saved when I was 12, so about 38 years ago. I've been on my journey of faith figuring out what salvation has meant for me. 38 years in the church. How many of you are 30 years or more in the church? All right. Now listen to me. Listen. I want you to insert yourself here when Paul refers to the Jews and listen to this because this gets right up in your face. Listen to this. Now you who call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship with God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, and an instructor of the foolish, and a teacher of the infants, because you have the law of embodiment of knowledge and truth. Not meant to be a trick question. Do Christians have the truth embedded in our message? Do we as a church, do we carry the very, very bottom line at the end of the day, the truth? Is it in our doctrine? Yeah, yeah, it's not meant to be a trick question. Yes. We carry with us, in our scriptures and in our understanding and our teaching, the very truth about all, all factors of life that you're ever going to encounter. The truth of it can be found in the Word of God. And so in our doctrine, in what you and I, for those of us who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I am Christian, we have the very truth of life embodied in our doctrine. So we have it, right? Paul says, because you have the law embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you not sometimes commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you not rob the temple? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? And the answer is, yes, yes we do. Yes we do. If we had an actual confession hour here this morning, I don't think there'd be one of us in the room who, who could say, I'm good. 
now I had, I had another perfect week. I'm so thrilled. 2019 is going so well. As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because we're inconsistent, because we have a problem, right? And so here's this idea that, uh, you know, we, we have, have this chaos we can't seem to get away from. The summary of the first couple chapters, he actually hits right at the start of chapter 3 when he says, here, look, here's the bottom line. You Jews who have a way of thinking about how the church should operate and the rest of the world, here's the bottom line. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who actually seeks God. I mean, consistently, every day, every moment, in every situation, always looking for the heart of God. Now, none of us are doing it. All have turned away. They've come to become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. The end. Let's pray and go home. Thank you, God, that that's not the end of the gospel. It's a critical part of the gospel that you can't avoid. We can't get around. We can't just somehow sugarcoat it and say it less than it is. But it's not the end of the gospel. But there's the problem right there. We start the gospel by saying there's one God who is infinitely good. His creation speaks to us about who he is. And he desires that all people be reconciled to him. That's a good start. But here's the problem of the gospel. None of us are getting there. Not by our own merit, not by our own intention, not by changing our attitude, not by trying harder, digging deeper. We can't do it. We have a massive, massive problem. It's, it's a tiny little word. It's a three-letter word, sin, but it's a massive, massive problem. And Paul says, there is the problem of the gospel. But he goes on in the next few chapters of, the uh, next few verses of this, to tell us about how what kind of hope is drawn from it. See, the second point of the gospel is that our most deeply rooted problem that every other angst in your life is born out of is that we are separated from God and we can't seem to resolve it. Uh, sometimes when we as Christians want to describe the gospel to others, we start with John 3.16. God so loved the world who ever believed in him. Assuming that people will just agree with you, eat salvation. But you say to somebody, you can be saved in faith in Jesus Christ, and a legitimate response is, what do I need to be saved from? I, I'm fine, thank you. I've got a decent job, a relatively happy family, I've got money in the bank. What are you assuming I need to be saved from? Well, the, the gospel tells us we, we all, 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 inside the church, outside the church, everybody, we have a problem. It's a sin nature that prevents us from being reconciled to God. So later on in Romans, as Paul moves on, he starts to reveal some of the hope that we can have in this. And he talks about salvation. And he talks about having peace with God and accessing the grace of God and having the strength to stand in God. And it's just a really wonderful way that it's phrased. So move over to chapter 3 and listen to how he describes this, Romans chapter 3. This is basically the gospel as it's stated through the book of Romans. It's this in gospel. In uh, Romans chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 21. Having identified this problem that we all have, he says this, But now there's a righteousness from God, apart from the law, which has been made known, from which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes, this is it, this is the pinnacle, what everybody's been waiting to hear. Through faith in Jesus Christ to all whom believe, there is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. And the church said, Amen to that. And the church actually meant to say it with a lot more emphasis than they did. 
Let me read this again, because this is the center. This is when you, if you would draw the gospel out and there's an anchor point, this is it right here. Listen to this. There is no difference, for all have sinned and are justified freely by His grace. See, we 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 recognize that. We say, oh, I know Romans. I know Romans three twenty one said all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No, no, no. That's only half the verse. Listen to the other half. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and and are justified freely by His grace. Which means the very people who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, those people, he says, and those people are justified because of the grace of God. They are saved from the punishment they deserve. God represented Him as a sacrifice, of, presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. There it is. This good God of creation who wants to be redeemed with us, we can't reach because we have a sin nature that's just going to do everything it can to keep us from getting there. We can't resolve the problem ourselves, but Romans 3.21 says, that's okay because He's worked on your behalf, and by the grace of God He's made Himself available to you by faith in His blood. And then the church said, amen to that, absolutely. And Paul says, this is where the hope of the gospel is being redeemed. Here's the hope, that God's law is perfectly revealed when we accept faith in the sufficiency of the blood of Christ. And over the next couple weeks, as we come into Easter, we're going to focus on the sufficiency of Christ. Let me read for you a passage, and I know you're familiar with it, but I don't want you to turn there. I just want you, if you need to close your eyes, close your eyes. I just want you to listen to these words and know that this is where redemption comes from. Listen to this. Surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him, and it's by his wounds that we are healed. <clears throat> we all like sheep have gone astray, and each one of us has turned our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed and afflicted, and he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears in silence. He didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who out of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, and though the Lord makes his life an offering for our sin. That was Isaiah, and that was hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. Tell me that God doesn't know what he's doing. I don't know what you're dealing with in your world. I don't know what's going on in your world, and I know that you may be in a season where everything's all well. You may be in a season where things are really, really heavy, but tell me God doesn't know what's going on when he speaks through Isaiah hundreds of years before the person who Jesus shows up on the planet and it says, it will be through his suffering that we will be redeemed. This good God of creation has had a plan in place all along from the start that makes it available for you and I to be redeemed to him. Third point of the gospel is this. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ was sufficient to resolve our greatest problem and we receive this by faith. So Paul tells us all about it, and out of that, 
comes hope. That is the message of the gospel. That despite whatever chaos and captivity you and I have become familiar with, this awesome, powerful, great God of creation has bled himself so that we can have hope in everything that happens. This is not just a hope for eternity. This is not an insurance ticket that someday I'll be in heaven. This is hope for tomorrow in the angst of your relationships and your jobs and your family and everything. It shapes everything how we interact with life. Paul says later on in chapter 5, uh, we can have peace with God. You realize that's at the base of every human uh, conflict and every human struggle? At the bottom of it, all the struggles that are in your family, all the struggles that are in your job, all the struggles that are in your life, the undercurrent to all of that is peace with God. Because if I have peace with my Creator, other things will start to come in line. But if I can't have no peace with God, the rest of it is just to stay in chaos. And Paul says, as a result of this gospel, we can have peace with God. That's a huge statement. It's only three words, but it's a huge statement. We can have peace with God. And then he says in chapter 8, the very first, the first verse of chapter 8, this is what's great. Now for those of us who are faith in this gospel, there's no condemnation. There is no condemnation. Now, I'm not going to point you out. Let me start with myself. I know myself well enough to know. If I were to sit down and write out my history, and I were to sit down and write a second page that talks about my character and who I am and some of the things I think and some of the things I've done and some of my mistakes, I know that I deserve condemnation. I know that all too well. And Satan does a good job of reminding you of it all the time. And the Gospel says, for those of you who have faith in this narrative, in this story of Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. There is no condemnation for you. And so there is the hope and the message of the Gospel. Now it bears out, I'm going to finish up real quickly here, it bears out on everything else that we do. Um, because last week I asked this question. Okay, all this, all this information about the gospel, all these things that I can know, you know, if I have, if I, if I read my Bible and if I understand it, and I've got a fantastic preacher who explains it all to me now, I know it all. So what? So what? What's that going to mean for us? So let me finish up then this morning, reading from the passage that you heard today earlier. So flip over to chapter eight of Romans. So in the first few uh, chapters of his letter to the Romans, Paul describes the gospel. What, what exactly is the truth? The truth is, all have fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified by God, received by God. In chapter 6, he says, look, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then in the latter chapters, he starts to say, and this is what it means. And so in chapter 8, we have this, verse 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. That is, those who accept the gospel message, that the sacrifice of Christ is enough. It has satisfied God and it has redeemed me. God says, Paul says, then God works all things for the good of those who have accepted that. Jump down to 31. So what then shall we say in response to this truth? Well, if God is for us, then who's going to be against us? If God is for you, and listen, here's the message of the gospel. Unlike where we started this morning, what if God's out to get you? The heart of the gospel is this. God is for you. He's for you. He wants, to, he wants to lift you up. He wants to celebrate you. He wants you to bring the best in life for you. That's, that's the, the celebration of the gospel. 
This God who has all the power and all the sovereignty and all the authority, who can do whatever he wants, he is on side for you. If God is for us, then what in this world is going to take me down? And the answer is nothing. Nothing takes us down of the hope we have in Christ. So he goes on to say, verse 37, Nope. In all these things, having mentioned all these things that could be hard and just struggling, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor read the next sentence with me, nor anything else in all creation. There is nothing in all of creation that can take from you the love of God. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let me finish with this. I mentioned to you that I had the opportunity uh, because of God's calling on my life. I've had the opportunity many times to sit with people when they're at that point in their life. That is, maybe there's no tomorrow. And I've heard people say who have been in the church for, for 40 50 years, who have heard the gospel, who have heard the message of the gospel, who have heard the implications of the gospel say, you know, when it really comes down to it, I hope I've been good enough. And so I, I want to share with you this morning as your pastor a word of clarity and encouragement. I guarantee you 100% without question you have not been. Not one. There is not a single one of us, not Mother Teresa herself, has been good enough to satisfy God. That is not our access point to His glory. Now that's not to say to you, you can go and do whatever you want. I'm telling you, we don't earn it. We don't educate ourselves into heaven. We don't behave ourselves into heaven. We don't get there by our behavior. We get there by the good grace of God. We get there because God sent Christ to be crushed on our behalf. And my faith, it is not perfectly enacted every day. My attitude some days just flat out sucks. That's the theological term. But my faith is born on the fact that what happened with Jesus Christ was enough on my behalf. And that's the gospel. So I want to end this morning. Uh, you're going to see, throw it off the screen first, the reading that we just looked at. Um, you'll see that's Paul's words from Romans. I am convinced of it. I'm convinced of it. And I'm convinced of it as much on my good days as I am on my bad days. I'm convinced of it when there's money in the bank and when there's no money to pay the bills. I'm convinced of it when my health is good. I'm convinced of it when my health is failing. I'm convinced of it when our family celebrates. I'm convinced of it when our family's in chaos. I'm convinced of it no matter what my circumstances are, that there is nothing in creation that can take from me the surety that I have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we're going to finish this morning with this.